Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. I met Stephen White several times in the past few years and was very excited to bring him onto the podcast. He shared his journey coming from Madison, Wisconsin, as originally a journalism major through various interesting pieces of the music business, combining music, communities, DJing, technology. All of this led him through Grace Note and now at Dubset and its product Mixbank. Uh, we're happy to have Stephen sharing his observations on early streaming and how he's been able to shift from one type of B2B to B2C business to consumer, then to another type of B2B as the business and the business he's been in has changed. He discussed with me international trends, the role of curation by DJs, and the hard challenges that Dubset had to overcome to get to where it is today, challenges he initially looked at and said, too big a problem. So glad to see that he's wrestled with this problem and glad that Stephen joined us on the podcast. So your background has not been music the whole time. You've been in other parts of music and tech, or not even, you've been a reporter for a while. You've got an interesting background. Can you kind of share a bit how you got to where you are? Sure. I, I started out as a, as a journalist, and I was a writer and journalist, you know, kind of through high school. Um, I, I entered college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a journalism major. And um, through a, a, a pretty long story, I ended up deciding um, that I wanted to be part of the story, not just tell the story, and decided that journalism probably wasn't the right avenue for me. And so uh, I decided at that point to pursue a degree in Afro-American studies with a hit, uh, focus on hip hop and house music. Wait, wait, wait. they um, had that at University of Wisconsin-Madison? They did, oh, cool. and they still do. Cool. <laughs> it was a very, very cool major, and I got to work with some great professors at the time. Uh, Wisconsin had invested very heavily in their ethnic studies department as a way to attract more uh, diverse um, student population to the university, which you know at the time had a very, very small minority population. Um, and so it was a it was a great program, and I I learned a tremendous amount about music and the evolution of music, um, you know, and specifically, you know, focusing on black music and how, you know, the beginnings of rhythms coming over with the slave trade evolved into blues, evolved into jazz, evolved, you know, eventually into hip hop. And so that, you know, that foundation around music um, was really a part of what uh, led me to start uh, my first business, which was called Lift Magazine. And Lyft was a it was a nonprofit that brought uh, artists into in, inner city schools to uh, lead in school and after school programs with an effort to try to bring arts back to the schools, which had been really decimated at the time. Funding had been just um, you know pulled pretty heavily across the board uh, in all states around the arts, and uh, we were trying to do our part to bring arts back to the schools and to do so in a way that both served the students but also uh, served the artists who were you know, giving their time and, and working with the kids. So we created a publication that 
um, we would take these um, these programs that were six week, eight week in school after school programs. And at the end of the program, we would publish the work of the kids that had been created during these programs, but also publish the work of the artists to give the artists some visibility and to help them further their careers. And it was very, it was a very rewarding way to bring journalism and music and the arts together in a way that allowed us to, you know, we thought make a, a real fundamental uh, impact on kids uh, it, throughout, you know, we had 16 cities up and running at the height. And, and we did this whole thing, which was originally conceived to be kind of a glossy, full color, glossy magazine. We ended up putting the entire thing online um, back in 1992, when not a lot of people knew what online yeah. was. And, and we were one of the first online magazines ever. I think we launched about three weeks after Salon, which was the first online magazine ever. Um, and so we, we kind of, my partners and I got thrown into technology as a means to figure out how to, to get this publication out to the world. And that was really the birthing of my involvement in technology. And then from there, I, I spent many years in technology as the internet kind of boom happened here in San Francisco. Worked very early on with Apple and did a lot of the work to create the first Apple online properties, um, working with a team at Apple at a, at a company called uh, CKS. Uh, and then from there, went to a startup called Echo Networks, which is really my first true music technology um, undertaking. And that was a startup that was very early streaming uh, company. Um, and the idea was that music is a social activity and that streaming is a very kind of solo activity. And you see this today with everyone walking around with their headphones on, staring at their phones, not interacting with <laughs> there's each a other. Video, there's a video <laughs> I did for an event uh, a few months ago that I simply recorded 10 minutes of students walking across campus. And it looks like it could be yeah. a total parody because everyone was simply faced first into their devices with all their separate audio experiences and not even looking at each other. Now, this is this is the... The, the vibe of where we are now. So it, it's interesting because you've, you've had a great history of collaborative bringing music and other things connected to other people and to new tech. So this, you've got a long, deep footprint here. Yeah, I went, you know, from there I went to Grace Note and spent 14 years at Grace Note really immersing myself in the world of you know, media recognition technologies and metadata oh, and all oh, the challenges. Let's, let's back up a second. Grace, Grace yep. Note does what? And this is before it changed hands several times, right? That's correct. So this is, I was employee number 21, I think, you know, uh, back in 2001, I started. Um, and I was brought in to kind of shut down the original Napster, which is a whole story we can talk about. But Gracenote at its core is the largest database in the world of music and video information. And that, that database of information is tied to any number of products, but the kind of core product line for them is media recognition technologies. And that takes many forms. It started as a recognition of CDs, which is what powered the early conversion of CDs to MP3s. You know, when you put your, your CD in your computer, all of a sudden, magically, all the names of the songs would just pop up on your screen. That wasn't because the names actually existed on the disc. That's because <clears throat> Grace Note had invented a 
technology to actually read a part of the DIX called the table of contents, which tells the laser where to go to read the disk in terms of the segments of the disk. It, it ends up being a set of numbers that are unique to each piece of music because it's very rare for any album to have the same song lengths and the same number of songs. So it becomes this unique fingerprint for the disk. And we were able to read that fingerprint for each of the disks and deliver back the set of information about what was on that disk. And then from there, the company expanded to do a host of additional things, um, including um, audio fingerprinting technology, which is a big part of what I'm doing today, what, what, which is very what similar is to the technology. Audio fingerprinting? That, so that's looking at the actual audio waveform processing the waveform through an algorithm to create a fingerprint that allows you to then recognize what that piece of audio is by comparing that fingerprint to a database of fingerprints, finding the match and saying, this song is song A by artist B. It's very, it is the same technology that is used by the consumer application Shazam, which many people are familiar with, but it's, a, it's also a technology that is now ubiquitously used across the industry as a way to identify content whether it be by companies like youtube and their content id system when people upload content to youtube it goes through a fingerprinting check to see what that content is does it include any copyrighted works can those copyrighted works be attributed and assigned to anybody the the technology is used throughout um, services like Facebook and SoundCloud and others uh, who have to comply with certain rules around checking what content is um, based on their licenses with labels and publishers. And all of this, uh, so and all this has to happen in an instant. This is all near real-time stuff, so it all has to happen very, very quickly. The technology is pretty mature at this point. We deployed our first audio fingerprinting technologies at Grace Note in 2001 so it's been you know 18 years 17 18 years of this this technology being developed and refined and getting better and better and better to the point where we really only need a couple seconds of audio now to identify something and we can identify it in milliseconds meaning that before you can blink we've come back with an answer so uh, somehow i'm remembering that this phillips is one of the early dance partners in this and in really doing a lot of that work? Yes, Grayson actually acquired their fingerprinting technology from Philips. Ah, okay. Um, Philips, Philips had a lab in Europe that was focused on a lot of these kind of advanced technologies in the audio space. And as, as Philips, as a company, moved away from you know, audio as a, as a business line, they started to sell off various parts of, of these technologies and Grayson acquired the fingerprinting technology from Philips. The other one that was a big developer of this technology early on was Fraunhofer, uh, the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, which is a big research institute in Germany that's most famous for inventing the MP3 um, and the, the codec that is now kind of ubiquitously used as you know the MP3 codec, um, which is just a compression technology that allows for you know the creation of digital files that are smaller and therefore more portable and able to be streamed easier and delivered easier across the internet 
Uh, Grayson also acquired some of that technology from front. I, my, my weird history with some of this stuff is that I was on the board of Autitude, which is also was working Philips. Yeah. Yep. And that got sold yep. between, I think, Yahoo and Adobe um, in, its, in its parts and That's pieces. Correct. Yeah. Um, as we're all yep. trying to figure out how to identify. And, and I remember back from that era that uh, and people were finding ways to screw with it. So whether this speeding yes. up the content or changing the pitch and uh, from what I'm understanding that that's still part of the dance. It, it, it is. And like any technology, it has its limitations in terms of what it can do and what it can't do. That said, the technology over these 17 years of developing it has become a lot more robust to those kind of challenges. And so you know, we can still, we, there are still thresholds where the technology will stop working in terms of kind of speeding things up and slowing things down and shifting pitch, but it's much, much more robust than it used to be. Uh, and we're able to, you know, support much broader thresholds in terms of what we can actually identify. So how did your life move from GraceNote, which then changed hands a few times, to Debset, which I think you were originally on the board before you came on as CEO. How did you start into that adventure? Yeah, well, I was I was running product at the time uh, at, at GraceNote, and I wore many, many hats at, at GraceNote. I ran sales, I ran product, and ultimately was CEO for several years before I departed. But um, I was running product at the time, and I was approached by a friend of mine who said, listen, I've got this guy in New York who really wants to bring DJ mixes online. And you know, he knew my background in, in hip hop and my my love for hip hop as a genre. And, and born out of that is a natural love for DJ culture because it's so intertwined with everything that hip hop is about. Um, you know, there's no way to separate the two. DJs are you know, at the core of what hip hop has always been. And they always will. Now I have to ask, even in I have to ask the bridging <laughs> question. Do you, do you yep. DJ? I okay. do not. I'm not a DJ. I've been known to get on the mic once or twice, but uh, I'm not okay. a DJ. Um, so, so he approached me about this and I, you know, I, I honestly, the first time he approached me, I said, tell the guy to go do something else. Um, this is a really, really hard problem. And it's one that, I don't see possible, you know, possibility that it can be solved. Um, but he kept on me and he kept after me. He's like, listen, this guy just really wants to talk to you. Really wants. So finally I sat down um, with this guy. His name's Dave Stein. He's the original founder of Dubset. Uh, and what he said, he said three things to me that very, that really resonated. The first was, he said, DJs, and this is, you know, 2009. He said, DJs are the new rock stars over the next 10 years. DJs, will you know come out from behind the shadows and will be very front and 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 you know very front and focused as and recognized as artists and as part of that will start to be you know charting artists which has turned out to be very very yeah. true he said um electronic music and dance music is our generation's hip-hop and you know is going to continue to grow in popularity is going to be the biggest genre for for this generation which again has turned out to be very true uh and then he he said uh in a world where streaming is really taking taken off and you know consumers are going to have access to 60 million 70 million songs at their fingertips 
there's going to be a strong need for curation and who better to curate musical experiences for you than a DJ who's professionally trained and knows what they're doing and knows music very well and, and can create these, you know, musical journeys for you that will bring content to you that you don't necessarily expect and you wouldn't put together in your own playlist, but is going to, you know, give you an ability to discover new music that you wouldn't be able to find elsewhere. And so I kind of sat back and, <laughs> and thought about those three things. And I said, yes, yes, and yes, all three of those things are very true. And there is a need for a service and a system to legitimize this content and bring this content out into the world in a way that we can make it available to consumers without them having to go find it on illicit sites or hunt and peck for it on UGC services like UGC being um, user generated content. So services that allow users to upload content like YouTube, where it could be a cat video, but it could also be a great DJ set. And, you know, today you have to go find that stuff in a world of, you know, millions and millions and millions of pieces of content. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to find good DJ content when it's not all put together in a cohesive way. So for what you. And so that, that was the beginning of the journey. I joined the board and, and ultimately um, the, the company was originally focused on a consumer service, you know, much like SoundCloud is today. Uh, and then we decided after a few years of trying to get a consumer service off the ground that competing with Apple and Google and Amazon probably wasn't the, the smartest thing to do. Um, and then given my B2B background, you know, I really helped drive a shift and a pivot of the company to become this B2B platform that would focus on the clearance of DJ mixes, the distribution of DJ mixes into other services like Apple and Spotify. So going back a little bit to Grace Note Roots in terms of being that B2B sort of clearinghouse information, all of those puzzle pieces. Yeah. So, you know, as a B2B provider, which is business to business, that means that you're a business that's supporting other businesses as your customer. You're not directly working with consumers. So our customers were other businesses like Sony and Apple and Spotify and Pandora, et cetera. And so at Grace Note, we, you know, we, we licensed to those companies access to technology and access to data uh, and you know, provided many of the piece parts that were used to create the consumer services that you see today. Um, you know, Apple is a great example. We powered all the early functionality, we being Grace Note at the time. Um, you know, powered all of the functionality inside of iTunes, the ability to rip CDs, the ability to import your collection and have it be identified and linked, the delivery of cover art, the normalization of metadata, I mean, the correcting, you know, incorrect artist names and incorrect song names, and then ultimately the locker services uh, that they launched where we were linking, you know, your existing collection to versions of those songs in the cloud all of that was powered by GraceNet's technology, um, but very much behind the scenes. Yeah. And so, you know, we had a long experience and a long journey at GraceNet of building out these types of business-to-business -business offerings, licensing these into companies like Apple and Spotify and Pendo. We've worked with all these guys before. Um, and so it was kind of a natural evolution of, of Dubset to 
<clears throat> create this B2B offering and to bring a, a similar approach to a problem that we saw um, that, that none of these guys were going to be able to solve on their own. So you're trying, trying to convince people with Debset, though, to let, to let their content be licensed as entire pieces of songs, as stems, as, you know, are, are essentially combining permissions plus data? Or what's the secret sauce that made this so hard that you originally didn't talk to Dave Stein? Well, I think that, I mean, the idea that you're going to go out and get licenses from every single label and publisher in the world to let you use their catalog this way. And then you were going to convince every, you know, DJ and content creator in the world to give you their content. And then you're going to be able to, you know, create some sort of consumer experience around that, that to convince consumers that they should pay something different you know, outside of their Spotify subscription to get access to this content. It was just a, it was a tremendous challenge. Um, and so, you know, when we finally decided to do it, a lot of those challenges were still there. It's not like the challenges went away. We just decided, you know, I decided ultimately, hey, this is a challenge that's worth taking on. And it's been a long road. It has not been a simple journey. You know, it's been something that we've been working on since 2009 so we're you know we're we're almost 10 years in here to trying to solve this problem and we're part of the way there not all of the way there so it's you know it's been a tremendous amount of work to get there but i think ultimately the walls that we're knocking down and the changes that we're bringing to the industry are pretty fundamental in terms of how this content is treated how it's recognized and ultimately what we're able to do for DJs and DJ culture, it feels good because I can see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel here, um, you know, across this journey. We're, we're very close to solving. And you've lived through the whole transition to downloads and now the whole trend, a big chunk of the transition to streaming. Have you been appropriately positioned for that or has things taken you by surprise or happy accidents that you're in the right place at the right time? Uh, we always position Dubset around streaming. Uh, we never focus the company around downloads. And so from that perspective, I think we made the right bet early on that streaming was going to be the way that most consumers would consume this type of mixed content, you know, for a couple reasons. One, these files are, are large, you know, these, these sets, DJ sets on average are over an hour long. Um, they contain, you know, the equivalent of 22 tracks. Um, so you know, if you think about that, trying to download 22 songs at the same time, you know, it's a pretty massive file. Um, so we never saw that as a viable approach. We always saw um, the consumption paradigm being streaming and, you know, aligned ourselves with that early on. And so the the business's transition to be in alignment with where you were going, um, has the international side of it also moved in good alignment to where you were taking the business or has that been slower or faster to develop? We're, we're on different roads in streaming in different countries. So I would think that that combined with DJs being in, I, I tend to think, you know, big European business, different in other countries, has, has the global side lined up with you well? It, it, it has. I mean, there's, there's always going to be parts of the world that are 
you know, behind in terms of some of the infrastructure required to really support, you know, full streaming. And I think we've still got a ways to go, you know, in parts of South America and Southeast Asia and Africa, certainly, um, before we've got, you know, full infrastructure in place. And and more importantly, the the kind of carrier plans and approaches that align with the realities of how people consume, you know, content. Um, so, so yes, in many ways, the, the parts of the world that have the infrastructure in place have, you know, adopted streaming pretty heavily. You know, Korea, for example, uh, South Korea, you know, 85% of, of, um, uh, of the population has, you know, full broadband, you know, access. That's a pretty high number. So we've always seen kind of, you know, very good traction in places like Japan, uh, in South Korea, in parts of Europe that, you know, are kind of heavily dance focused, like Germany and France, that have that kind of infrastructure in place. But still, you know, still a long way to go in, in some areas. Um, and the services that tend to, you know, exist in, in Africa and in India and parts of um, in parts of South America that don't have as broad access to broadband still tend to be either tethered download or download focused. And in those areas, we just don't play yet today. Or, or side loading, it's a bit of a pain still and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Yep. yep. So you are now at a growing sweet spot or is it that there's more big things to overcome or new competitors have come out because of the technology shifts? What's the environment in 2019 where we are right now? Well, 2019 is going to be a huge year for Dubset. We've really put a lot of the foundation in place that's required to support our business across 2017 and 2018. Uh, in 2017, we announced our first major label deal with Sony Music. Um, that was really a kind of foundational piece for us. And, you know, kudos to Dennis Cooker and his team at Sony Music, who uh, who really have embraced what we've been trying to do here and been very early supporters of it. Um, that has really allowed us to grow the market around kind of that cornerstone tenant in the mall um, and, and allowed uh, other people to come on board knowing that a big player like Sony is supporting this. Um, since that deal, we've, we've added f over 50,000 labels and publishers to the platform. Um, and we've done another, you know, big deal uh, in 2018 with with Merlin, uh, who represents the independent labels, and allowed us to bring a very broad number of independent labels onto the platform, <clears throat> giving us access now to a catalog that's north of 35 million songs. And so uh, that foundation really has uh, allowed us to start to really innovate with the DJ community and more importantly with the distribution providers like Apple and Spotify. And Apple in particular has been a, a fantastic partner for us. Um, many of the listeners may not know this, but Apple very recently at the end of 2018 uh, created a genre for DJ mixes. So DJ mixes and live sets is now a genre of its own inside of Apple Music. And because of that, we now have a whole dedicated home inside of Apple Music where we're delivering mixes, you know, at scale. And there's, you know, 
hundreds and hundreds of mixes available through that you know, kind of homepage and thousands of mixes now available on Apple Music. And consumers are, are reacting very positively to this content. You know, it's, we've seen our stream rates just go through the roof uh, across 2018. We expect all of that growth to continue in 2019. We have some exciting announcements coming up with new um, content partners. We'll bring more catalog into uh, this service. Can't talk about who they are yet, but very exciting ones for us. I was going to say, I'm assuming and announcements are sometimes conference adjacent or event adjacent. We have lots of events coming up this spring that I'm assuming that uh, we'll be hearing some of this in association with. Yeah, you'll, you'll be hearing uh, the first set of announcements will be coming in the next couple of weeks, actually. So we've got some, some big ones to announce uh, pretty quickly here. Um, but yes, we tend to announce things around, you know, conferences like NAM, which is a big conference for, you know, equipment manufacturers and the folks that create the, the software and hardware that DJs use uh, when they perform and record. Uh, and then South by Southwest, which is a big conference uh, in, in Austin, Texas, that's a big, you know, music and media uh, conference. And then there's a, a, another big conference in May called IMS, which is uh, a big uh, electronic music uh, and dance music uh, conference that happens in uh, Ibiza. And you very much bridge almost, I, I was going to say the two sides of music, there's more than two sides of music, but a lot of businesses tend to deal with recorded music or live, and you are in an interesting space working with live, recorded equipment, um, all sorts of, you know, it's very much of a interesting multi-sided platform that you're dealing with all these different parts of a growing business. It is. We have, you know, kind of three spokes of the wheel as we talk about it, which is, you know, our content, uh, the content owners themselves, the labels and publishers who ultimately are our customers. That's who we serve as a, as a customer base. But we also, you know, clearly serve the DJs, the content creators. And we also have, you know, very close partnerships and, and service the uh, the distribution services, the Apples and Spotify's mm -hmm. of the world. So we've got to service all three of those, you know, groups. And then within each of them, there's some nuances to those. You know, publishers are very different than labels. Um, domestic labels and publishers are very different than international labels and publishers. And so there's there's quite a bit of, of nuance to it all. And it you know it would be very it's something that would be very hard to do with an inexperienced team that doesn't kind of know the industry very well. We have the benefit of having, you know, several very, very experienced team members who've been working, you know, working in the music industry for, you know, 20 plus years, each of them. We say we've got a combined 250 years of experience just amongst our executive team, you know, working in the music industry. That's really important when you try to take on these hard challenges because, you know, if you don't kind of know ahead of time some of the big, you know, potential pitfalls, what happens to a lot of startups is, you know, they have a great idea and they take that idea and they try to bring it to fruition, not knowing that there's kind of a big hole around the corner that you're about to fall into. Um, and, and if you can't foresee that a little bit and, and kind of plan for it through having an understanding of how the industry tends to look at these things, uh, it makes it very difficult. And even with our knowledge, you know, I'm not trying to say we haven't had our twists and turns. You know, it's um, it, music is a, a, a tough business. And, you know, you, you've got to roll with the punches a bit as the industry evolves and you learn things. But 
it has helped quite a bit to have a, a very experienced. And I would say evolved might understate it because we're going through tremendous changes just even in the past two years in this, um, I was going to say surge to streaming, but that possibly even understates it. A tremendous change in yeah. the entire plumbing of the business. Um, and the, we're in the midst of, as we sit here in early 2019, trying to figure out what the Music Modernization Act is going to be doing in terms of operationalizing some of this. How does that affect you guys? The MMA doesn't affect us. That's the Music, music Modernization Act, uh, you know, typically referred to as the MMA. Um, and that's uh, for everybody that doesn't know what that is. That's a a bill that has just gone through, you know, gone through Congress and been signed by the president into law that modernizes some of the approaches, specifically around publishing. Publishing. Mm -hmm. So the publishing side of the right side of the streaming side of what you're doing then is going to oh. fold into it. Yeah, so so the, the the current version doesn't really speak to what we do because it's very focused on masters and how masters are used, master recordings are used. So the original recording that's put out by the label, you know, that recording has a set of publishing rights that are associated with it. And the way that those publishing rights have been conveyed in the world of streaming is very different than how it was conveyed in the world of downloads and very different than how it was conveyed in the world of radio and some of these other, you know, distribution uh, mechanisms. So um, the, the approach around streaming, which was put together, you know, kind of in the early 2000s, before we all knew kind of how this was all going to play out and how, how these services were ultimately going to end up operating, you know, with its best intentions, you know, was a very clunky approach and it was very, very difficult for any of the service providers to comply with the law. And so um, it's done some great things to streamline things around the use of masters, master recordings and original recordings, but it really doesn't speak to derivatives and it doesn't, and derivatives, a derivative is anything that's been changed from its original mm -hmm. form. So mm -hmm. what we work with is really specific to derivative rights and as a result of the fact that none of the legislations really dealt with derivatives before because nobody has really kind of tried to solve this issue um it, derivatives have been in this world of kind of direct licensing where um the problem that we're trying to solve is you as a content creator you used to have to go on a one-off basis go and license all this stuff meaning if you created a mix with 22 songs and you wanted to commercially release that, you'd have to go get 22 licenses. You'd have to go get 22 licenses. So the MMA doesn't simplify around you. It, 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 you continue to have then that, that ability to take all of these direct agreements and make business happen that is not being simplified or at least specified by the, the upcoming rules in the MMA. That's right. So we have to continue to, to innovate kind of around the MMA. Um, the MMA will help in terms of, you know, creating this centralized registry. One of the parts of the MMA, the requirements of the MMA, is that uh, there's the creation of this centralized registry of publishing information. Publishing is particularly tricky because for any given song, 
there may be multiple publishers who represent the various song makers. Um, and so you, you may have three, four, in the case of hip hop, sometimes with, you know, 15 different, you know, contributors, you have 15 different publishers for one mm -hmm. song. And so the, the ownership information for this stuff has been dispersed very broadly. And as a result, it's been very hard for anybody to get a true understanding of who owns what. And so what the MMA does do is it requires all of the rights owners, the publishers, to register their information in a centralized registry. That's helpful for all of us across yeah. the industry because, because it finally creates in one place, you know, a kind of a, a, a database of truth of what this stuff is in a way that it forces the publishers to make sure their data is correct there. It forces the publishers to register their content there in a timely fashion if they expect to get mm -hmm. paid. And it, it, and it really forces everybody to do a bunch of cleanup. Um, and one of the big challenges with publishing data is people sell catalogs and songwriters move from one publisher to another. When that stuff happens, you know, traditionally these databases have just had a bunch of information that's just wrong. It's old. It's, it hasn't been cleaned up. And there's really been little, you know, little reason for the publishers to spend the money to go clean it up. Um, but now the MMA really requires them to do so um, in a way that hopefully hope, helps the whole industry get to, you know, a true understanding of for any given work, who actually owns the various pieces of it from a publishing perspective. So Stephen, you have a business that has been in many ways ready for this transition we're going through. We've got growth happening in all sorts of areas. What are you excited about right now? I mean, I'm, I'm excited about a lot of things, but, you know, I'm excited that we're, we're really getting to the point where, you know, DJ culture, especially with the huge surge in popularity of hip hop uh, and rap music, which, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of the latest yep. numbers, but in 2018 was a quarter of all streams, you know, were rap and hip hop. So we're really at this kind of, you know, this time where, where hip hop has just massive uh, appeal uh, popular appeal and has really become kind of America's music, you know, style uh, of the day. I'm excited to to be able to bring DJ content out along with that and to to really, sh you know, highlight and showcase some of the amazing creativity of these DJs who who create content that a lot of consumers still don't know about, still don't understand. And, and you know, if you asked you know, there's some numbers that EMI put out, um, did some research around that said there's 700 million consumers worldwide that listen to mixed content. That's a big yep. number. But if you, if you look at that through the lens of how many consumers are streaming music content worldwide, it's a tiny, tiny number. And so, you know, we're excited to expand the user base and expose more people to the joy of a DJ set and the amazing content that DJs create and to really give DJs a platform to be able to showcase that creativity and to be able to bring their content to consumers in a frictionless way without having to worry about all of the complexities of licensing. So a DJ would find resources then by going to dubset.com? Actually, go to mixbank.com. Mixbank is the name of the product, okay. um, and that's where DJs can sign up for free. 
can upload their content. We put it through the clearance process and then assuming we can clear it, we'll get it out for them and actually distribute it out on their behalf to you know, Spotify and Apple and Tidal and all of our distribution partners. We create the you know, DJ's uh, artist page for them in those services and help them start to build their repertoire of content. And on the flip side, the, the tech under the hood is Mixscan then? Yeah, Mixscan is a pr one of the primary pieces of technology. That's the recognition component that actually looks at every six seconds of audio across a DJ mix or a remix and determines what the content is. And then based on recognizing that content using that fingerprinting technology we talked about earlier, combined with a bunch of other tech that's specific to kind of DJ content and how DJs mix and remix content, um, enables us to identify what it is. Once we identify what it is, we can associate it with the underlying rights holders. Once we know who the rights holders are, we can clear And that it. lets then the DJs go to Mixbank and have that all taken care of for them. Excellent. So Stephen, anything to close us out as we wrap up this conversation? It's been great talking to you. I've been kind of watching the company from the side and have been seeing you guys kind of grow and, and move into this interesting space right now. Any, any last closing comments? Um, just, I, you know, I think it's important um, for folks in the industry um, and for anybody that's kind of interested in, in becoming part of the industry to really continue to watch what's happening with Article 13 in Europe, uh, to continue to watch closely what's happening with the evolution of the industry's approach with user-generated content sites like YouTube and SoundCloud. It's going to be a very interesting year in 2019 <laughs> uh, as, as regulators start to step in and try to help content owners have a bit more control over how their content is used. Uh, and so that's an interesting part of the industry I would, I would urge everybody to keep their eyes on. And then, you know, take, take time and go to Apple Music and listen to a DJ set. It's well worth it. <laughs> and Article 13 <laughs> is kind of, I tend to think it is the opposite of the DMCA. I don't know. But for, that's for European side of things that you actually have to have the evidence that you've actually cleared the content, not how would you clearly talk about article 13 it's got so many biases I, I, on various yeah, sides of the whole thing yeah i'd simplify it by just saying it, it it takes away strips away some of the safe harbor provisions that exist in the u.s that protect companies like youtube and soundcloud by allowing them to kind of ignore what the content is that's being uploaded and to to say like we don't know what it is it's being uploaded by a user and because of that we're not responsible for clearing it and making sure that the rights holders and the artists get paid. While, while that was probably, you know, true that technology was difficult, you know, back in the, in 2000 or so when that legislation was put in place, it was hard for companies like YouTube and SoundCloud and others to have to look at every single piece of content that was being uploaded. It's just not the case anymore. Technology has evolved to the point where we can actually look at all this stuff. We can make sure that rights holders and ultimately the artists and creators who create this content are properly compensated, that their, they, their wishes in terms of how their content is used are respected. I think it's a great thing for artists. I think it's a great thing for, for rights holders. It's gonna be very disruptive to work through this paradigm shift 
you know, the, the initial stages of it are going to mean massive takedowns of large amounts of cataloging content. Your favorite videos might go away because they contain copyrighted content that, you know, the, the creator didn't obtain permission ahead of, hand, uh, ahead of time to distribute. But ultimately, it's going to result in artists and rights holders being paid for the, their content in ways that just create a more sustainable ecosystem for art and for the creation of art. And that's ultimately the goal, is to make sure that it's not just the technology companies making money as this content's ex, uh, you know, exploited, but ultimately the folks that created it are, are properly compensated for the use of their work in a way that, that all feeds back into that creative process and makes it makes it possible for an artist to actually make money doing what they do. And yet is being, as everything else is in the music industry, fought about in public. So, well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks for joining. And we'll continue, and we'll continue, continue to be so. to be so, which is one of the interesting things of working in music is that so many people are so passionate and are taking different positions in building a future of a business that's going through pretty dramatic change. Thanks for joining us. And um, thanks for having me. It's been great. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.